This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I'm Chris Kreitcho in my normal spot in my downstairs office. And I'm Stephen Caradini in Raleigh, North Carolina, where this all began in an upstairs <laughs> carpeted bathroom with no what air conditioning. A carpeted what? A carpeted bathroom. This is literally one of the worst decisions you can make for a house. <laughs> but it's helpful in that it will minimize the amount of echo. There will still be echo, dear listeners. So thank you for putting up with an on-location Stephen Caradini. I also will be a little bit touchier than usual because there's not very much air conditioning up here. <laughs> so I'm wearing a towel on my head and drinking a beer and doing my best to stay cool. <laughs> Thankfully, I have a lot of positive things to say about this week's version of the ERLC statement on AI, and that will be better for them. Because if I had done this last week... <laughs> oh, you boy, just thought he was touching on was fire hot. last week. <laughs> you thought it was hot. But that's what we're going to do today. We're going to be talking about the rest, the back half of the ERLC statement on artificial intelligence. We got so excited about it last time that we didn't have time to do half of it. So we're going to do <laughs> the statements, uh, the articles, my bad, the articles 7 through 12 today. Which as an overview of where we're going, and these will all be nicely marked in chapter markers in your podcast player as they were last time. So if you have a podcast player that does that, you can listen to us talk very specifically about the articles on work, on data and privacy, on security, on war, on public policy, and last but not least, perhaps Stephen's favorite, perhaps the one I have the most with which to contend, even while also agreeing with substantive parts of it. 12, the future of AI. Yeah. So we'll, yeah. we'll spend relatively little time on nine security because we talked about that in conjunction with Article 5 a fair bit last time. That's right. That's right. So we'll start off with Article 7, work. I like this one because in my day job, I write about the future of work and the present of work and how technology affects people's individual types of work, be it musicians or technical writers or coders or whatever. So I'm intimately interested in this from a practical perspective and a professional perspective. So I think that it's a pretty good statement. It says, we affirm that work is part of God's plan for human beings participating in the cultivation stewardship of creation, A+. The divine pattern is one of labor and rest in healthy proportion to each other. Yep theologically sound. Our view of work should not be confined to commercial activity. It must also include the many ways that human beings serve each other through their efforts. A plus. Take that, people who want to reduce everything to mere economic productivity. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Also, thank you for including uh, all of the people whose work is usually not included as work. Yes. That is fantastic. So, A plus. AI can be used in ways that aid our work or allow us to make fuller use of our gifts. And I actually am fine with this because it says fuller use of our gifts. So mm -hmm. AI subservient to the overall desire to use the intrinsic gifts that we have. Right. I think that's fine. Uh, the church has a spirit-empowered responsibility to help care for those who lose jobs and to encourage individuals, communities, employers, and governments to find ways to invest in the development of human beings and continue making vocational contribution our lives together. Uh, this is a great sentence, except that they were missing a clause with that's like with AI. Like this is just a general <laughs> statement about people who lose jobs and vocational contributions. Uh, 
because the AI actually does not make an appearance in the sentence. But <laughs> other than that... The, the implicit context, however, is, OMG, the AIs are coming for our trucks! And these being Christians, that means, oh my goodness, of course. We, we must clarify what OMG means. Oh my badness. <laughs> yeah. OMB! Yeah. OMB! Office of oh my badness. and Budget. But in general, <laughs> Chris and I have talked about this before, about how, A... Robots are probably not coming for our jobs in the way we think, uh, but may in some particular and specific ways. And furthermore, we've encouraged uh, individuals, communities, employers, and governments to find ways to invest in the developments of human beings and continue mm-hmm. educational contributions to our lives together. So we, by default, have to agree with this sentence. Yeah, we, we have. The one thing I'll note is that the other thing we have said that I think is a miss in this article. And again, as we noted last time when talking about any and all of these articles, they're relatively brief. They are not exhaustive. So we're not holding anyone's feet to the fire too hard for this, but I do think it's an important miss. That is that we should also think about the rate at which we adopt things that employers particularly and governments particularly as employers have a responsibility to consider not just whether, but how we go about adopting technology. So for example, with AI, does it make a difference if we say, yes, we're going to adopt AI, but no, we're not going to do it overnight? Can we do it in a way that allows us to provide long-term paths and stability for communities as we help people change jobs? And can we do it in a way that honors people's sense of their own vocations? Because I think it is very easy for especially Silicon Valley types and or knowledge worker types in general to devalue the goodness of manual labor and people who perhaps like the jobs they have that may get affected by AI sooner than knowledge work jobs. It is easier for people in the knowledge work side who don't love these things. As I put it to a friend of mine recently, and as I think I put it to Steven recently in a separate conversation, I hate yard work. I hate it with a deep and abiding and indeed somewhat burning passion because it bores me. And I hate being bored, as my poor wife knows very well, and as my poor parents knew very well when I was growing up. I I loathe boredom, and I find yard work boring. I am the outlier in this regard, however, and I should not assume that because I find it boring, it's perfectly good to automate it out of human existence. I think this article would have been strengthened by an acknowledgement of the ways that our choices are not things we can or should simply make without regard to those kinds of senses of vocation that people have, as well as when we do make those moves, the rate at which we make them. Now, again, it's a short statement. I totally grant that. But I think there is an important note there when we're considering these kinds of things around work, especially when the article does otherwise do a good job of referencing that idea of vocation, of using our gifts. Yeah, I do think that, one, there is a way that all that you just said could be contained in that last massive sentence. But there's also a way that, that because they didn't make it explicit, it could also be left out. So I feel like you could have made it a little bit more explicit in the sense that they take a moment to say, to help care for those who lose jobs, instead of saying, and perhaps choose AI uses that don't necessarily maximize the amount of job losses. So there's there's a mitigation there that could be implied, but would much better be used as an explicit aspect of the right. 
Um, and uh, I, I do think that this is already one of the longer statements, which is interesting in, in word count terms. And so that's partially because AI in the workplace has been one of the areas of <laughs> rapid yeah, development. Yeah. And so we've had more time to kind of parse out what the ethics of AI in the workplace are. I mean, we were talking about this several years ago now. So, you know, we've had time for it to germinate in the system. And so that's another reason why we could push a little harder here. It's like, look, we've already had time to think about this. You could have right. included that aspect. Listen to me slowly. Come on. <laughs> Gosh, all you people on the ERLC and friends. I did really like their conclusion on this, though. The last paragraph here, they have that long paragraph Stephen worked through, but then they also include a denial at the end. And most of these are structured as pairs of affirmation and denial. Perhaps I think all of them are. That's the basic structure of the document. But the denial here is relatively brief, but I think important. One, they deny that human worth and dignity are reducible to an individual's economic contributions to society alone. And this gets at the point Stephen raised a minute ago, which is that, for one thing, there are many people who do a great deal of work, which is not, quote unquote, economically contributing. We can think of caretakers in families as one of the most prominent examples of this. But in general, there's a tendency in our cultural context to think of work primarily economically. And that's not bonkers, because there is a natural connection between the two, but it is not a total connection between the two. And conflating them too firmly, as our cultures want to do, is unhealthy. And it leads us to think that we are less valuable. I've directly had this conversation with people I'm very close to of struggling to feel like the work they do matters or is valuable because it's not earning a paycheck. But it's really valuable work in many cases. The the number of moms staying at home with their kids, for example, they're doing much more valuable work than I am at LinkedIn. Just full stop. Maybe I'm, quote, making more money, unquote, and yeah, sure, because who pays stay-at-home moms? Their kids with gratitude, maybe, if they're lucky. There are <laughs> like, some dystopian just... novels about this, but that's... Uh... <laughs> right. So I I think it's really important that they made this denial here, and it's one that I think is very important for people to hold on to. I do also appreciate that the flip side of the denial here is that... Hilarious. Human... Humanity should not use AI and other technological innovations as a reason to move toward lives of pure leisure, even if greater social wealth creates such possibilities. And certainly I've had conversations that direction with techno-utopians. Yeah, this is a really interesting statement because, one, it is one of the most pure ethical statements here. It is it is a it is a specific should not. Right. And not like a you should do this instead of. It is a pure this is not a thing. And that is what they're saying here. Is they're saying we don't care what you do other than that. You're just not allowed to do that. <laughs> Which I think is good. We need more of that in the world. Like yes. we don't need trade-offs sometimes. We need like no. <laughs> and the answer is yeah. pure leisure? No. What are we going to do other than that? Anything else. Anything <laughs> else. Just not that. And to clarify a little why, it's because we think that human beings are made as... It's because we read The Great Gatsby. That's why. That's not why, Stephen. That's... 
I mean, if you've read The Great Gatsby, that's why you should not pursue a life of pure leisure. <laughs> the Great Gatsby is a great illustration of this point, but that's not why we think that. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> we think that human beings were created as creative beings. And so we're not meant merely to sit around watching football or basketball or playing video games or whatever else. We're meant to be working creatively. Writing about basketball is I'm just kidding. I'm just sorry. It's really hot in this space. This is going to be a wild one today, kids. Buckle up. We've talked before about how there is a distinction between that kind of goodness of creative work, that whether it's with your hands or with your mind or with both, you get to the end of the day and you feel that wonderful sense of good tiredness at having put a good thing into the world in some way versus the days that are drudgery and reducing the days that are drudgery and increasing the days that people can genuinely fulfill their vocations, that they can feel the thorns and thistles a little bit less and feel the joy of work well done a bit more is great. But that's a very different kind of existence from, yes, Stephen, I'm going to say it again, just sitting and watching basketball games all day, every day and commentary thereupon. Hey, hey, people who are commenting on basketball are actually working. Like, that's hard work. <laughs> but the people just walking, watching. Just watching. Yeah, that's a that's not work. Yeah, just say it. Anyway. So article 8. Article 8. Data and privacy. So if you've listened to Winning Slowly, you know our stance on data and privacy. We've made it pretty clear implicitly and explicitly over the last six seasons. So uh, with, with that as a backdrop, it says, we affirm the privacy and personal property are intertwined individual rights and choices that should not be violated by governments, corporations, nation states, and other groups, even in pursuit of the common good. And generally, over the last six seasons, we've come to a sort of that conclusion, right? Like, there's, there are limits to what the common good can do, and privacy is, is in some ways and in some parts one of the edges. and. So even though that prima facie doesn't exactly look like a winning slowly statement, it kind of is in that we do admit, uh, and we will be talking about the, the common good quite a bit more since Jake Metter's new book came out and it's about the common good and we're very interested in the common good. But the common good is not a, a utopian state. It's not a utopian right. artifact. It is a thing that has boundaries. And so privacy is one of those boundaries. Right. Privacy is part of the common good. And I think this is... One of the things that often gets overlooked, we, we talk about privacy often solely in individual terms, but individual privacy actually is a necessary contribution to the public good because of the ways that privacy shapes our ability to carry out our vocations in the rest of life, the way it shapes our ability to have healthy families and healthy distinctions between different units, mm -hmm. to be able to do things individually in privacy can be a good thing and very much contra the, well, what do you have to hide mentality that sometimes gets batted around, got batted around yeah, a lot more I mean, three or four years ago than it does these days. Yeah. Nothing. And the problem is that you know that now, and that's the deal. Like, right. <laughs> I also think one of the problems here is that people conflate the commons and the common good Yes, in that the commons is the public space all around us, whether it is so designated by like a private sort of an essential. Uh, it is the public space, the, the, the actual physical dimensions that people move through and interact with other people in that are not specifically right. demarcated as uh, personally private. 
there's mm-hmm. a difference between corporately private and personally private, and we don't have to get into that right now. But the public is is a, a, all the people. The commons is all the places, and the common good is neither of those. It is it is something that is a a subset of both in some ways, but it is related more towards how we interact than the spaces in which we interact. Right. And so it's it's really useful and helpful to make that distinction because it lets us recognize that pursuit of the common good is often framed in terms of things like, as we'll talk about a little bit more in war, but as we talked about a lot in the context last time in security, of defending the common good against crime or whatever else in these kinds of construals of the common good. And therefore, it matters how we construe the common good. But it also helps us remember that even the pursuit of the common good, it would be best if there were no crime. But sometimes the pursuit of that good for the common good, that is, is not worth the costs you have to pay. See Minority Report. See many science fiction dystopias. Lots, lots of science fiction dystopias on this. Yeah, yeah. Lots of them libertarian. Lots of them libertarian. (laughs) So I I think Chris is totally right. And the next line follows it up with, while God knows all things, it is neither wise nor obligatory to have every detail of one's life open to society. And we say, preach. We deny the manipulative and coercive uses of data and AI in ways that are inconsistent with the love of God and love of neighbor, A+. Data collection practices should conform to ethical guidelines that uphold the dignity of all people without having the slippery conversation of what is dignity (laughs) beyond the the imago dei, which is my answer, but is uh, unsatisfying to some people. That is a good statement. My favorite line in this whole thing. I actually want to to pause, though, and say that while I, th- I I agree with you where you're going next, and I, I, I think where you're going next is a very important qualification that helps what I'm about to say here. But I think that data collection practices, yes, should conform to ethical guidelines that uphold the dignity of all people. And that sometimes entails not collecting data. That's a thing that is too often either assumed one way or another in this conversation. But we talked about this in our big data episode in series six. I said series six. I haven't even been watching Doctor Who recently, Stephen. Season six. Who's sitting in a non-air conditioned room now, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I live in Colorado. We don't really do air conditioning here. So shut up, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that that is also worth explicitly saying here. Now they get close to that in the next sentence, which is also one of my favorite sentences in the document. So, as you were, Stephen. We further deny that consent, even informed consent, although requisite, is the only ethical standard for collection, manipulation, or exploitation of personal data individually or in the aggregate. Suck it, terms and conditions! (laughs) And let's also... Let's also note that informed consent, the fact that they pull that in here is helpful because one of the great discussions that is happening among people doing ethics in this space is noting that a Facebook terms and conditions or anybody else's terms and conditions doesn't really constitute informed consent because you're not actually being informed by almost any of those legal documents. Suck it, terms and conditions. I hate it. I've been we Chris, heartily affirm this denial. I have been telling Chris for years and anybody else that will listen to me that like I am waiting, waiting on pins and needles, tenter hooks even <laughs> for 
the Ninth Circuit, and it will be the Ninth Circuit. <laughs> of course. Who will strike down a terms and conditions as legally inoperative because it's too broad-based to actually be a meaningful legal document. Also, we can change our minds about any of this and do whatever we want at any time with or without informing you. Yeah, yeah. You would not believe the number of terms and conditions policies that say almost exactly that. Yeah, and it's usually like the fourth to the last term. (laughs) And the reason for that is because if you scroll all the way down the page, it'll be the first one that doesn't appear when you scroll all the way down. So... It's usually the the very last one. So just in case you actually do try to read all the way through it, it's going to be the very last one, except the ones you see if you just scroll all the way to the bottom immediately. And then <laughs> I know this because I've read them. Yes, it is treacherous and wicked. I know what I'm talking about. Now, I haven't read them in years. Stephen is a one in a million man. I can't stand it anymore, but I've done it. So, so there you go. Uh, so that is my favorite line, even though it's not my favorite article. It is my favorite line. High five, ERLC. And <laughs> there we go. Okay. AI should not, should not be employed in ways that distort truth through the use of generative applications. This is actually really interesting because prima facie, this is true. You you should not lie. That's like a right. basic aspect. The, the extra qualifier with the through there is interesting that they included. Of generative applications. This is really novel. This is pointing back toward Article 6 in a lot of ways. They're not coming out and mentioning, again, what we said. <laughs> Don't go look up. But they're not coming yeah. out and mentioning things like deep fakes. So there was an instance of this that was less uh, problematic to reference than some of the ones we might have talked about before between then and now where there was a faked video of nancy pelosi saying things nancy pelosi did not actually say making the rounds on a number of social media sites this is the kind of thing they're gesturing to here yeah and it's it's particularly interesting and i think wise that they call out this specific thing Right. I think it should be including through the use of. As it is, it serves as a limiter rather than an elaborator. But I agree. I'm glad it's here. Yeah, I think that's a very forward-looking thing. And as I appreciate forward-lookingness, as we'll get to in number 12, (laughs) I think this is really good. Uh, And then this is sort of uh, almost a boilerplate, but uh, we should mention it. Data should not be mishandled, misused, or abused for sinful purposes to reinforce bias, strengthen the power or demean the weak. I think that's, I mean, that's pretty hard to argue against. It is, though I will note that it butts up against an awful lot of how things work in American politics and, let's be honest, people politics in terms of strengthening the powerful and demeaning the weak. Oh, yeah. This is one of the things that Christianity gets the claims right. And we often fall down very badly on the execution, but oh, the claim, yeah. we are 100% there for the claim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're talking about like how this works out in the real world, then like, <laughs> yeah, this is, like one that should not be in there because it's basically not ever going to be used in as many cases as we want it to be used. But in terms of- like, But we're really glad it's in there. Yeah, in terms of being a statement of ethics, like the ways you should handle it, this is like, yes. well, yeah, definitely. A plus. Yep. Okay, so we're skipping Article 9 because I've already ranted about because it. Because Stevens ranted about that a lot. Yep. Already. Yep. Now, it, it, it actually is useful to look at num- number 9 as- uh, existing where it does in security because article 10 moves straight into war and also article 9 does flow out of the notes in articles 7 and 8 especially 8 around data and privacy right so it is in some sense qualified by that and our discussion last time we stand by but i do think it's worth note that it 
everything in Article 9 is to some extent qualified by everything they laid out about data and privacy in Article 8. Right. And that is helpful as a framing and important to the point you raised last time about the fact that this is a series of articles where each one does build upon and assume the content of those which came before. It does. It does. Um, And so Article 9 in the fullest context is not as egregious a uh, display of contradiction with Article 5 as it looks, but it's still... And it's still a contradiction in that intelligence, surveillance, and investigation are things that are just prima facie ideological. How we handle them, that's an ideology. So, But then it moves into Article 10, and you're like, oh, man, if Stephen hated security, he's going to hate war. Well, here's an interesting thing, dear listener. <laughs> when Chris met me 13 years ago, I was an out-and-out, turn-the-other-cheek pacifist. I was 100% you should not fight back. Ever. This is true. Yeah, I was I was card carrying basically over the past thirteen years. As I've been reading more philosophy and rhetoric and all these things that you do when you go to grad school. Okay, maybe not the theology, but I included theology. That's all I did and in grad school. Come on. That's well, you you did a different <laughs> grad school than I did. Yes, yes, and I did. praise be to God for that. I have come around to some of the tenets, some of the tenets of just war. In that there are situations in which violence, even initiated violence, is just. Right. So that's a shift over the last 13 years of my life. So keeping, keeping that as a backdrop, here's Article 10. We affirm that the use of AI in warfare should be governed by love of neighbor and principles of just war. So right off the bat, they're like, hey, if you're not into just war, you're not going to be into this article. Right. If you're against it. Move on to number 11. You're not going to be... This is what we're doing here. We're doing just war. And we will link to some summaries of the doctrine of just war, originally articulated primarily by St. Augustine, and then elaborated throughout the history of the church. It is fair to say that my trajectory has been a little different than Stephen's and that I've always adhered to this, but there are a lot more wars that I would call unjust than when Stephen met me. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, Reinhold Niebuhr, Niebuhr, mm-hmm. Niebuhr, I can't ever pronounce his name correctly, uh, was a, a pretty strong and prolific writer on the principles of just war. And I actually can't remember if he's for or against it right now. Uh, do you remember? I don't. Yeah. But I know that he's written a lot about it. So there you are. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Reinhold. That guy, he wrote a thing about that thing that sorry, one time. Sorry, Reinhold. <laughs> I know. It's been a while. Okay. So the use of AI may mitigate the loss of human life, provide greater protection of non-combatants, and inform better policymaking. So again, if you hold to just war and you know that something bad is going to happen here in pursuit of the common good, then those are all things you want. You want less loss of human life, more protection of non-combatants, and the best policy available. Uh, any lethal action conducted or substantially enabled by AI must employ human oversight or review. That, I think, also falls clearly under the responsibility aspects of just war and that even if you're going to go mm-hmm. make war, you're responsible for what happens. Right. And it also falls under some of the points made earlier in the statement where they emphasize that you cannot drop your moral responsibilities and say, ah, the AI did it. I think my gravest concerns here are not with the principle as outlined, but much as the same way as we said before, 
in the need for this to be happening in a much stricter way. And I'm therefore very glad they call this out. There is very often far too little oversight and review of many things that happen in the military, even in the U.S., which is better about this than many places today. But not as, not as good as some other places. It should be. Yep. Yep. It is true. Some places do it better than we do. We are not the bar by which to assess. No. And therefore, particularly in the American context in which this document was written and published, this point deserves emphasis. It It must be bolded because there is too little oversight and review of human operations, especially in kinds of covert operations in these kinds of contexts today. That need goes double when someone can say, oh, we just had an AI doing these covert operations in a country full of people with brown skin that we can kind of hand wave, not caring nearly as much about what happens to them. And sadly, that's the reality in a lot of these contexts. Now, the positive thing is that because they know this, they've actually Mm -hmm. written three sentences in a row that almost mean exactly the same thing, just in case you weren't paying attention. So any lethal action conducted or substantially enabled by AI must employ human oversight or review. All defense-related AI applications, such as underlying data and decision-making processes, must be subject to continual review by legitimate authorities. When these systems are deployed, human agents must bear full moral responsibility for any actions taken by the system. And then fourth, so it's actually four in a row, we deny that human agency or moral culpability in war can be delegated to AI. Four sentences in a row basically say... Humans are responsible in all of these different ways, four different sentence ways. Humans are responsible for things that AIs do, especially they're going to kill someone. And again, that's that's very indicative of how just war thinks of things. Just war knows that bad things are going to happen and you are responsible. But sometimes it's better to be responsible for doing a bad thing in the service of the common good than not doing anything at all and letting the common bad continue to happen. And that's a, an ugly, nasty trade-off, but that's what just war is, is one right. nasty trade-off. And it is a position that some Christians do, in fact, deny. Stephen was not weird in the context of Christianity for being a pacifist when I met him. There's a long and well-regarded tradition within Christianity that holds that frame. Just war takes the notion that sometimes there are actual Nazis murdering millions of Jews and homosexuals and other people, and they need to be stopped. And a lot of bad, ugly things happen in the process of stopping them. But it is not worse than allowing grave evil to continue. And that is simply reflecting on the reality of living in a broken, sinful world full of people who sometimes do heinous horrid things. And we just have to grapple with that fact. And we also have to be willing then to take responsibility for the things that happen along the way. Mm -hmm. And we also should be far more loath to resort to force than, frankly, the American project in particular has been. Because as I said, there are many wars we have fought that were not just wars. And Yeah, but unfortunately, it stopped us from fighting one that was actually just. So, sorry, sir. Turns out history is complicated. Yep. So also the final denial here is one that shouldn't need to be said, but wow. I mean, it's good that they said it. Yeah. No nation or group has the right to use AI to carry out genocide, terrorism, torture, or other war crimes. Amen. Yep. All right. So article 11 is public policy. It actually hits a lot of the notes that have previously been hit. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm going to give it a cursory overview, and then we're going to jump to Article 12, which is something wholly different. So Article 11 says, we affirm that the fundamental purposes of government are to protect human beings from harm, punish those who do evil, uphold civil liberties, and to commend those who do good. The public has a role in shaping and crafting policies concerning the use of AI in society, and these decisions should not be left to those who develop these technologies or governments to set Amen. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. We've been calling for this for years. In particular, these decisions should not be left to those who develop these technologies. This reminded me as I read it of a statement in a book I read a few years ago called Evolution in the Fall, which reflected on the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the fall and human evolution and how these things can or cannot be fit together. And in wrestling with this, one of the authors said, while the input of experts, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'll put the actual quote in the show notes, while expert opinion is really important here, these things should not be sort of decided without hearing from the people in the pews. And he said it much better than this. But I think that frame that the experts often miss important things that ordinary people see clearly from their ordinary lived experience. And I'm using ordinary here as being contrasting with quote unquote experts, nerds of on a given subject, really, whatever that subject may be. Yeah. I think that's a really important frame to keep in mind, including in doctrinal discussion and therefore also including in ethical discussions, because ordinary people who are not so enmeshed in it often have insights that you miss when you're buried in a given subject. And also, they often have better and healthier incentives in the case of someone developing these technologies than the people developing them do. Because those who are developing them are incentivized to want to see them succeed in ways that may or may not be good for the common good, and in ways that make them profit, but may or may not be good for the common good. And therefore, this qualification that those decisions should not be left to those who develop these technologies or to governments to set norms is a really important qualification that I think applies much more broadly than just to AI, I think that's but true. certainly does apply to AI. It certainly does. I agree. Uh, and then the denial is long, and I will sum it up, and it says, AI, even in a highly advanced state, should never be delegated the governing authority that has been granted by all sovereign God to human beings alone. So AI bosses should not be AI bosses. That's that should not be a thing. should not be a thing. Okay, Article 12, the future of AI in seven minutes or less. So we affirm that AI will continue to be developed in ways that we cannot currently imagine or understand. That's, that's bold and fairly true, I think. Um, including AI that will far surpass many human abilities. Uh, 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 I mean, yes. In, in narrow senses, that's already true. Uh, the prime example being AIs that can beat anybody easily at games of chess or go or right. even jeopardy right right so in a, in a limited sense i suppose that we can grant this i don't think in a maximal sense it is going to happen but that actually is not super relevant to the rest of it because they cancel out even if it was possible so but cortana and rampancy and other problems from the halo universe steven i never played halo that much oh uh, I was well when my wife and i do our halo Come podcast on, in a few years you'll get to participate vicariously i'll probably play along with you when you do that but i was a passive that <laughs> was a big deal like <laughs> that's fair not, not compatible um <laughs> i just played rpgs which were fantasy violence 
let's not get into it. Totally better. Uh, totally better. God alone has the power to create life, and no future advancements in AI will usurp him as the creator of life. That's a that's a de facto statement. Um, but I actually think that that probably isn't a de facto statement. In that, based think, on the the weird noises and faces Chris is making at the yeah. moment. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, they present it as a de facto statement, right? Like, right. They don't. They don't say it as a should. They say it as an is. And I think right. it's more of a should than an is. I think that's right, and I think it gets at some of the points I raised in the previous episode about this. I think this statement, as such, I can affirm in a very narrow way, but I think it's very much debatable whether it is the case that humans are incapable of creating sapient life in the sense that this says. Whether we should or not is a separate question from whether it is possible and whether we could create beings with moral agency of their own. And But there is a slight modifier here in that they have him as capital C creator as opposed to lower C creator, which is specific because they have, they don't play it fast and loose with uh, capitalization anywhere else. So they're giving a specific title here, creator of life. So the argument here then is that like whatever humans or AI make that has life is a sub creation of the ultimate creator of life. And that you cannot take responsibility contra everything else. You can't take responsibility for whatever AI does to create life because God is the one who creates life. And I think that's a really important thing to note in this, which is why I said that this one's wholly different in that it says, here are some things AI does that you cannot take responsibility for. So even though they're trying to deny that some things are going to happen, no future advancements in AI will serve him as the creator of life, big C, little C. They're implying that people will try to do this and you should not or cannot do this. And I think it's worth, uh, again, affirming that I agree that no future advancements in AI will usurp God as the creator of life. However, I don't think that all of the entailments they think that includes are in fact entailed in that. I think you can have that statement while still allowing the possibility of humans creating for good or for ill, see science fiction, other artificial, genuine intelligences, not merely AIs in the broad machine learning sense. Right. And I won't belabor this point further. We talked about it a bunch last time, but I do continue to think that this is one of the, the places where I have more deep disagreement with the authors of the document. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever watched Star Trek The Next Generation, like half the episodes are about this. <laughs> Hi, Data. What's up, Data? And everything else that you make along the way. Anyway, um, <laughs> So the church has a unique role in proclaiming human dignity for all and calling for the humane use of AI in all aspects of society. And this is off in that this is not a thing that most churches would say they have a responsibility to do. And I think this is what the best druthers of a statement like this do is they say, hey, look, you actually do have this responsibility. This is something you should be doing because of our theology that we all collaboratively hold. And therefore, you must do this. Where there's a lot of people that be like, well, yeah, I mean, that's not my jam. Like, that's not what I do here. And so this is what you do here now. And so I think this is one of the reasons I like this article the most is that Mm -hmm. it is not just like a you should, you should not. It's an expander of your scope of responsibility. And A, that's not fun usually in that someone's like, hey, guess what? You have more responsibilities now. (laughs) But it's important in that if the church is to continue 
to have a voice in the world. And in some ways it right. always will and that the gates of hell cannot prevail. But whatever that voice is, I would prefer it to be wise and cautious and thoughtful contra the last 2000 years of history or whatever. So, <laughs> so for the last paragraph here, we deny that AI will make us more or less human check or that AI will ever attain a co-equal level of worth, dignity, or value to image bearers. Eh, I've already lodged my disagreements here. Future advancements in AI will not ultimately fulfill our longings for a perfect world. What's up, Curse? Check. While we are not able to comprehend or know the future, we do not fear what is to come because we know that God is omniscient and that nothing we create will be able to thwart his redemptive plan for creation or to supplant humanity as his image bearers. Check, check, check. And the reason I like that last sentence is because Christianity, especially American Southern Christianity, which I'm sitting in like a bastion of one of the right hubs now. of one of yeah. the hubs of actually doesn't believe this sentence at all often it yeah i mean there's lots of other christianities that fully believe this sentence like christianities that are under persecution or christianities that are obviously only one of many options like out in arizona or christianities that are totally nascent like uh, in unreached people groups and people who are mm-hmm. who are just joining the faith for the first time, perhaps the first of their people group to do so, they they de facto have to believe this sentence. This is how the relationship of them and God works in the context of how they live. But out here in the South, like there's a lot of things going good for us, and like you know there are some things out here that want to defeat God, and we're not going to let that happen by God. <laughs> And and there is a real tendency and temptation to fear and to fear what is to come and not to trust the goodness of God and his work in the world. And we we strongly affirm the sentence and we exhort our fellow Christians out there to meditate on this and to chew on it and to take it to heart because it is good and right. And come what may, this is what we affirm. Yeah. This is what we believe. And just to those who are like, hey, like I actually struggle with that a lot. Like that's actually my biggest spiritual struggle chris knows this, mm-hmm. is fear of the future so even though i affirm this in the most vociferous claim <laughs> and i am sort of denouncing in which i sit i am literally sitting in it <laughs> it me he it, says it me it me twitter so <laughs> so don't don't think that i'm up on a high horse here i am just trying to preach the gospel to myself so that's how that works and so that's the 12 articles of it and it is a really neat document. And I really wish that we would do more of these for various other types of technologies. Yeah, Actually, AI probably would not have been the first sort of thought to do out of this type of thing <laughs> if we were going to be doing some of this. Like, social media would come first, honestly. Uh, maybe capitalism. Oh, sorry. 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 <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Jake will be so proud of you. Sorry. sorry. I did want to offer one small meta note and then my own summary thought, and then we'll wrap. I had one moment of fairly deep sorrow looking down at the list of signers here, a number of whom are my friends and many more of whom I'm acquainted with in various ways. Yeah, Matt Anderson is second, but that's because he's alpha. Yep. A comes first in the list. What made me sad, what is unfortunately not at all surprising, given the contours and structure of Southern Baptist and broadly conservative evangelical life, is that there are, and I think I counted six or seven women total on the list of signatories out of dozens and dozens. And 
even gr- if you grant all of the complementarian views that many of the people on this list hold, that need not be so in a document like this. And so I hope we will continue to do better in having more women doing ethics publicly in Christian life among conservatives, because I think we will do ethics better if we do so. That last qualification and my many quibbles about whether we can actually create the geth or not, Mass Effect time. What's up? I do really like this document, and I am really grateful for it. And with Stephen, I say, let's do more of these things. And who knows? Maybe at some point in the future, Stephen and I will write a document and make other people sign it. Yeah, that would be... You make people sign it, right? That's how it works. Uh, uh, I think that there are some problems with that. Uh, Stephen, quick, help me. Tell me who did the music for the episode. uh, This is... (laughs) The music for this episode was by... Uh, Arwen and the Mega Reset. It's called Signals. It's a great song. Shout out to Levi Wall, who is the drummer, friend of the show. Please don't use it without permission and all of that. It's getting really, really hot up in here, and I'm forgetting. <laughs> Steven's um, so sweaty right now. I, I know. wish you could see. It's, no, you don't wish you could see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone who sponsored the show. This month, sponsors at the Shout em Out level were the one and only Nathaniel Blaney. Others are sponsoring well above that level, but ask not to be named. And we thank you as well. And we thank all of those of you who are giving a dollar a month. It's really kind of awesome. If you want to sponsor the show, you can do it at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. You can also reach out to us at Twitter at winning slowly at Scaradini. Hello at winning slowly.org, Facebook, all that jazz. I'm on vacation for the next two weeks, so I won't get to it, but that's the slowly part of our name. (laughs) Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.